The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Riley Fessler, producer for the DSR Network of Podcasts. Today's From the Archive is an episode of DSR focusing on the 2022 meeting between Joe Biden and Mohammed bin Salman. Rosa Brooks, David Sanger, and Ed Luce joined David to discuss the merits of the meeting and the democracy versus autocracy framing of American foreign policy. We hope you enjoy. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I'm coming to you from somewhere not too far from New York City. Coming to us from, you know, America's Badlands is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. It's not Badlands technically, but it's it's rough and ready out there. Have you like killed a bison or something? No, I'm in Wyoming. We have a little miniature Badlands. It's only about a mile from me. It's sort of a cute, tiny Badlands, about the size of a football field. The football field size Badlands, because it's fascinating. <laughs> Coming from uh, an, another uh, remote location further north, we have David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you doing, David? Good, good. I'm, I'm sort of imagining, you know, Rosa out there with the airs of TR going after Buffalo. But up here in Vermont, we don't get many Buffalo. We get wimpy little bears, not like, you know, the real bears that Rosa gets. <laughs> Rosa has been known to ride a grizzly bear. I have tamed them. I played, I played my little flute, and they lay down at my feet. It's amazing. And offered to be my servants. No, Calamity Rosa, we call her. And then one of us, I'm, I, I'm sorry to say, is remaining inside a city, hard at work, nose to the grindstone. And that, of course, is Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? I'm very good. No, no glamour from me today. But are you jealous of David and Rosa being where they are? I am. I mean, I think if Rosa can, like, you know, hypnotize a grizzly, then you ought to be, you know, providing security for Liz Cheney because uh, <laughs> apparently it's not even safe enough for her to hold rallies. No kidding. I, I feel like I was having an imaginary conversation in my head with some hypothetical Trump supporters 
saying, what would it take to convince you <laughs> that he's a fraud? Like, what would it, is there anything? Because I'm not sure there is anything. It seems not. And I was reading somewhere that like Wyoming is the most conservative state in the country. Does it feel that way to you, Rosa? No, because my friends here are like the three Democrats in Wyoming. So, so I hang out with them, but everybody's very nice. But there are a lot of Trump signs. Rosa, would your, would your neighbors say that Representative Cheney is the fourth Democrat? In one? Probably so, yes. But I, I presume your three friends have registered as Republicans in order to vote for Liz Cheney. They should. They should. Yeah. No, it, it, is, it is fascinating and mysterious to me because, you know, these are perfectly lovely people. They're perfectly lovely people and they're smart and they're nice. And, and it is a mystery to me, you know, that the, the, they believe things that to me make no, no more sense than believing in Tinkerbell. And it is a puzzle. You know, how do nice, intelligent people come to believe something that, you know, to us is manifestly not true? And what, if anything, what, if anything, could alter those beliefs? We could continue to talk about that and, and perhaps we'll circle back. But I think we ought to honor the, uh, the mandate of this particular podcast and look out into the world. We have the president of the United States doing something which I believe. Uh, could be said to violate Sanger's first law. Sanger's first law being never say never, never declare a red line. This is a law that Sanger made uh, President Obama pay highly for. And uh, David, the, the president said, you know, he's going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. Now it turns out he's heading there kind of hat in hand because he needs something, which is lower gas prices. Do you think this is going to be damaging? And, and do you think it's going to be effective? So I think it's damaging among his base. It's not going to be damaging and the Republicans will attack him for being too close to the Saudis since they have had a, a long history of that. The progression on this is pretty interesting. So here you have a president who starts off by saying, the battle in the future is autocracy versus democracy, right? I think I know which side Saudi Arabia stands on the autocracy versus democracy front. Then on, in his next breath, he says that at the Latin American summit that they held last week, there were three countries that they did not invite, and they didn't invite them because they weren't democracies. And on the same day, they confirmed our story that the United States uh, was getting ready to send the president to Saudi Arabia. So in the first part, they were coming out in the direction of our first and highest interest is democracy. And in the second one, they were explaining that there's a long history of 80 years of partnership between the Saudis and the U.S., and we have to think about the entire breadth of the relationship. And they managed to do this without breaking stride from one part of the briefing to the next. That doesn't necessarily mean that at some point they couldn't bring the Saudis back into the fold, but I do think that they've got to explain a little bit why it is they're making an exception here. And I think one of the possibilities that they could have followed is to say to the Saudis, we want to have a good relationship with you. We value the partnership. We need you on Iran. We need you on oil. You need us and the alliance. We just can't do it with a man who ordered Khashoggi's dismemberment. 
And so you're going to have to find someone else to go deal with this. Yeah, well, that apparently is not the approach they took. According to the uh, reports, the president will meet with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who was the man who ordered Khashoggi to be murdered. Ed, a cynic, and you're not a cynic, but a cynic might say that this trip indicates that there is one thing more important to the United States than the democracy versus autocracy divide, and that is cheap gasoline. Um, uh, a, a, A less cynical way to approach this problem would be to argue that as appealing as the democracy versus autocracy framing has been, it's become increasingly difficult for the White House because, not just because of the economic conditions that have led to to this trip, but also the geopolitical conditions. And that the United States wanted to mobilize a lot of countries against the Russians, for example, in Ukraine, and found that a lot of the countries they wanted to mobilize found themselves on the wrong side of that divide and weren't super happy about that. Do you think that the the democracy versus autocracy framing is, in retrospect, going to have proven to be a mistake? He's quite right to, to value democracy. And I understand the sort of domestic political impulse of proclaiming this as a central piece of Biden's foreign policy. But the chief impulse was domestic in terms of quite rightly contrasting with the authoritarianism of Trump's Republican Party. But I don't think, you know, this is obvious in retrospect. I think it was at the time. And if I recall correctly, David, you wrote about this, David Rothkopf, and I did too, uh, at the time of the Democracy Summit um, late last year, that the Biden administration was making itself hostage to fortune. Now, Saudi Arabia was one example. India is increasingly a liberal, semi-authoritarian direction being another. And that, of course, is the original foreign policy framing. It's really about China. And so, of course, India is more important, whatever its political character, as a counterbalance to China. And therefore, that seemed to be obvious at the time. Uh, The invasion of Ukraine in a way, rebooted it. But if you see which countries abstained and which countries voted to condemn, well, you have a lot of small autocracies that are pretty worried about any precedent being set um, of a big neighbor gobbling you up and, um, and breaking international law. Singapore, you know, voting with us quite consistently. India um, abstaining as supposed democracy quite, quite consistently. So I think he's, he's got himself into a very foreseeable pickle here for very understandable domestic political impulses. As regards MBS, and you know, I don't know whether they're going to try and prevent this being a photo op, but I'm sure that MBS will be doing everything possible to exploit his leverage here, which he clearly already has, to make sure that this is captured by the cameras. That will be a moment of embarrassment for Biden, which, as David said, will, 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 harm, will harm him to some degree with the base. But the the proof of the pudding will be in, does OPEC, does a Saudi-led OPEC then step up output? Does it then, um, you know, take action that will lead to lower gas prices? And if that happens, you know, then I guess we would all grudgingly say, well, this was a, you know, a necessary trade-off. By the way, the Prime Minister of Singapore in the past 24 hours has said something to the effect that they didn't want to be 
involved in this democracy versus autocracy choice. Even they have come out and 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 stood up to it. Rosa, similar question to you, democracy versus autocracy, which side do you come out on? Well, it's, it's a really hard choice, David. I got can I think about that? <laughs> well, what what side what side of this do you think you're daughters. Remember, she's in Wyoming while you're asking that question. (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's obviously, I come down on the democracy side. That being said, I think, you know, as, as we've been discussing, it's, it's a little oversimplified because it matters for some purposes and not for others. I mean, I mean, we, the U.S., um, we, every country, there are issues where cooperation is so urgent that I think it clearly overrides concerns about a country's internal dynamics and politics. And, you know, for instance, uh, you know, working with China on climate change to the extent that we can, it would be horrible. It would be it would be not only shooting ourselves in the foot, but but uh, effectively shooting the world in the foot. If the U.S. were to say because of China's human rights record, we refuse to work cooperatively with them to reduce carbon emissions, that would be crazy. Right. And, and, And I think we can all come up with lots and lots of issues where it's something so urgent and so important that collaborating with another country does not mean that we are approving of anything that they do. It just means a recognition that if you're in a boat that's sinking uh, and your autocratic friends are willing to help you bail, fight about everything else after you've you know bailed out the boat and you're not sinking anymore. So I, I don't I don't actually I, I think that Biden is, is absolutely right to feel that we can't just ignore the Saudis. We can't, you know, we, we're not in a position to just say, we wash our hands of you, we want clean hands, uh, we refuse to talk to you. That said, I think I think I completely agree with Ed and with you, Dave, all of you. This this is in some ways a problem of Biden's own making, that if you go out and you you declare proudly that, you know, we'll make them a pariah and that we'll have nothing to do with them. And then you say, oh, actually, except except on these issues, except except now then you look like an idiot. Whereas if you start out by saying, uh, you know, this is complicated, we, we're appalled by this, we're going to continue to do everything we can to put pressure on them about this. At the same time, we recognize that keeping the lines of communication open on certain other issues is, is vital to, you know, both our interests and to a number of regional and even global challenges. Is there a way to do this right? I mean, you, you mentioned an approach that might have worked, but they're past that approach. They're going to go there. In so doing, they're going to, even if they say, you know, we support human rights and so on and so forth, they're going to end up essentially saying that uh, Mohammed bin Salman can do anything he wants, provided the price of gasoline is low enough. On that front, I don't know, do we expect that the Saudis will move to lower the price of gasoline very much? Is that even possible in the face of this ongoing war? Another thing the Saudis didn't like very much was the negotiation regarding Iran, which was a high priority for this administration. That that looks like it's not going anywhere either. How do you deal with the optics of a Saudi trip in a way that's not just gross? It's going to be a really hard thing for them to pull off. And by virtue uh, of an example of that, when we had a background briefing last night by a senior administration official, who was asked explicitly about managing the Khashoggi case, he answered the question without ever mentioning Khashoggi's name. But he did make the point that President Biden released a until then classified 
U.S. government accounting, mostly put together by the CIA and other intelligence agencies, about who was responsible. And they sanctioned uh, a, a number of Saudis who were involved, but not MBS. The problem they face is that they have come out with a policy that at the end of the day looks not dissimilar to the Trump administration's policy, which was one of looking for a reason not to find ways to hold MBS personally accountable for this. Anybody below him, they could. The president has found himself in a very familiar spot that many other presidents have been in. I mean, it was Jimmy Carter who made human rights the number one issue in his presidency until it wasn't. And of course, he had to deal with the Arab states as well. It was Bill Clinton who called the Chinese the butchers of Beijing while he was running for president and then ushered them into the World Trade Organization and said that over time, it would alter their behavior and make them act more according to Western values. It did not. And now Joe Biden has found himself in a similar spot. The second order question you've asked, David, is if you've made the decision that the overall relationship is more important than the human rights point, then what are you getting out of it? And that's a really good question, because so far, the production increases that the Saudis have announced are, as you point out, not big enough to make that big a difference. Now, maybe there will be more. They've also pointed out that Yemen has been moving more toward peace in the past six months with Saudi help than at any point in modern times. They're straining a bit to make a point, but there it is. And they've got the continuing attacks on Saudi Arabia and the Americans who live there by the Iranians and an Iranian nuclear program that is moving much more quickly uh, toward a weapon than it has at any point since the agreement was reached in 2015. So they're in a jam. And the Saudis had been betting that sooner or later, the United States would be forced by events to come around, just as Putin is betting that sooner or later the West will decide that its gas supplies are more are more important than a sustained interest in Ukraine. I'm not sure that Putin's got his bet right, but right now I'd say the Saudis did pretty well on theirs. Yeah, and what Putin I think is also betting that world food supplies will play the yeah. similar role, right? right? So Ed. You know, making all this somewhat more awkward for this administration, given the democracy versus autocracy stance, is the, the are the recent rumblings that the administration is going to consider lifting some tariffs on Chinese products again, because inflation seems to be the number one domestic political issue. Problem is just if if you do this with enough countries that were on one side of that divide rather than the other for economic reasons to fight inflation, then aren't you really sort of sending a message to the world what your real priority is? You are. And, uh, you know, the, the overwhelming impression is that whatever is immediately in front of this administration or any administration's nose, for that matter, is considerably more important than whatever principles it's set out. And uh, right now, you know, a wipeout in the midterm elections is clearly really dominating mindshare in the Oval Office. That being said, I, 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 I think the original idea of imposing tariffs on these Chinese goods, which are 20th century goods, you know, these are mostly commodities we're talking about, 
was a bad one. It didn't address any of the, the problems we're facing with China in terms of technology. And it didn't benefit the American middle class. It raised prices in the United States, which was a problem even before we have inflation. If this isn't going to happen, but if the Biden administration, if Catherine Tai, the US trade representative, you know, recommended to the president to get rid of all of these tariffs on Chinese imports, that would take about 1.2% off the headline inflation rate, which is right now 8.6. It's not insignificant. It's non-trivial, as economists say. And if you manage to get the Saudis to you know, bring gas prices, oil prices down by 20-25%, that'll probably take another percentage point off inflation, all of which will feed into a softer landing for the US economy, a possible avoidance of a recession and make you know, the, the, the real battle for democracy, the one taking place here, easier to win um, in 2024. So I, I understand all of these impulses, and I'm not entirely sure that you know, the hypocrisy that's being exposed or the sort of inelegance and incompetence being exposed by the democracy autocracy framing is going to cost America that much internationally. It's kind of built into the global view of America that it's uh, uh, idealistic until its interests are involved, and then its interests always win. And, and that's just how the world sees America. And, and this is no, this is a return to normal after Trump. So I don't think that tariff move would be, would be a big problem. And I think that it, it, a cost benefit should show it's, it's, a thing, it's a thing Biden should do. Yeah, I think it should. And by the way, you know, for folks who are listening to this, we're not doing a deep dive economically here. You might want to look at recent analysis done by Mark Zandi from Moody's, which takes a look at how this inflation breaks out. Uh, I, I think there's a hidden irony in all of this, which is that Biden prioritizing this is going to be read here in the U.S. as Biden dealing with his inflation problem, when the reality is that inflation is a global issue and that all but a tiny fraction of a fraction, literally one-tenth of one percent of of the 8.5 that I had mentioned, comes from external factors. It comes, the biggest single factor is cost increases associated with the war in Ukraine, production-related issues associated with the COVID crisis and, and gradual recovery from it is the next biggest factor. But, you David, know- David, can uh, I make a quick point on the, on the uh, Chinese tariffs? Somehow people bought the Trump line, many people bought the Trump line during the administration, that the tariffs somehow were paid for by the Chinese instead of paid for by American consumers. Biden has this one right, but he hasn't gone out yet, maybe because they didn't want to announce the decision yet, and basically made that point vigorously. I mean, I think he's got to demonstrate to Americans this was hurting them more than it was hurting the Chinese. It's it's the wrong way to go about sanctions. That's no doubt the, uh, true. And Rosa, you know, when we think about that, I'm very reluctant to do what Twitter always does, which says, you know, this is a messaging problem. You know, people are constantly saying, you know, it's a, if you only change your messaging, you'd, so, you'd solve this problem. But in this particular case, particularly the autocracy versus democracy case, there are two challenges. One is the reason Biden is doing all of this is to win in November, which is the only way to maintain democracy in the United States. And that's really got to be the frontline issue for, you know, the top line issue for, for Biden. 
But you know, the, the you know there is a broader reality, and that is that given the challenges that we face in the world, there are some that have emerged, such as the conflict in Ukraine and the economic aftershocks, which we're going to go into into the in the fall with regard to things like food crisis, that need to take priority. You know, their security priorities. Is there a way to recast the administration's position? that is not the trap that autocracy versus democracy is, but maintains the kind of moral clarity that comes with it? I think that notwithstanding everything I said at the very beginning of this podcast about the mystery of people believing things that are not true in the absence of evidence, I think that polls, the more sort of detailed polling suggests that Americans, most Americans are actually sophisticated enough to understand that very little is black and white, that very little is, you know, good versus evil. And to also understand, you know, both on both on the right and the left, that the U.S. can't solve every problem, not every problem we should, are, is a problem we should even try to solve. That, you know, the, the, I think the message that it's complicated, that we're always going to have to both be doing difficult evaluations of our own, what is, what is in our own interests from a security perspective, what is threatening to our allies? What do we have the ability to change? You know, what should we try to change if we, if we could, but we just can't and so forth. So I, I actually, I think that politicians get into more trouble when they present things. I mean, on the messaging piece, I think, I think when politicians get into trouble is when they present things as black and white, good and evil, because people do, I think most people actually know that that's just not accurate. And then they inevitably have to eat their words when events demonstrate that, of course, things are not as simple. So I, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, I don't actually think this is going to hurt Biden one way or the other. I, I think that the people who blame Biden for inflation will still blame Biden for inflation, even if he somehow manages to work out enough political de- deals to you know, lower the price of gas by you know, 20 cents a gallon. That's not going to move the needle. The people who are going to be mad at him about engaging with the Saudis uh, are his own base, um, and they're still going to vote for whoever the Democratic candidates are, no matter what he does. So I'm not, I'm not sure any of this is likely to have any particular effect on domestic politics one way or the other. I don't think it is. I don't think it helps Biden or the Democrats to look hypocritical, but I also don't think it's likely to be very significant at the polls. I don't know if that I'm not sure if that gets at what you were trying to get at. I, I tend to think that none of this is going to make a huge difference because people will either it will confirm what they already think or they will tune it out one way or the other. Okay, well, let me pick up on that in a moment. This is the point we take a break in the podcast, say goodbye to the folks who joined us out of the general public and say we're going to continue on with those who are members and that if you're in the general public and you want to be a member, it costs about five bucks a month and we hope you join up and keep going with us and Membership has been growing throughout this year at record pace, and we hope it continues to because it enables us to continue to have conversations like this one and all the others we do on our Deep State Radio podcast and on the Deep State Radio network. So if you're not a member, good thing to do right now would be go become one. If you are a member, stand by. So, Ed, let me pick up on this point because. I don't think we should gloss over the economic side of this thing. Uh, The reality is 
it's increasingly looking like the difference, you know, like the choice that I sort of glibly described, which is democracy versus inflation, is kind of the choice the United States domestically faces right now. If inflation stays high and people are unhappy that they're paying too much at the gas pump or too much for, uh, for basic needs, looks real bad for the Democrats. If fighting inflation leads to big moves by the Fed, and by the time some people are listening to this, they may have seen a very big move by the Fed, perhaps three quarters of a point interest rate hike, uh, then you might end up in a recession for the second half of this year. That's not going to be very good for the Democrats. And, uh, you know, forgive me for oversimplifying, but my sense is that if the Democrats lose a number of measures that would be seen as weakening democracy are more likely. Is that what it comes down to on the domestic front, Ed? Is it democracy versus inflation right now? You know, let's take a counterfactual. I mean, Biden did the right thing the other day. He met Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, um, and he reiterated that the Fed is entirely independent, which is something he wouldn't have needed to do unless Trump had done the opposite uh, uh, and raised question marks over it made it clear this is the Fed's independence as an institution, and it's up to the Fed to tackle inflation. I will back you whatever you think is necessary. That was the right thing to do. The more confidence people have in the Fed acting independently, the likelier it is to lower inflation expectations, which is part of of inflation, and therefore to engineer a soft landing. But let's say that the Fed was under pressure from a Trump-like president not to raise interest rates to have an inflationary boom, then we'd be looking at horizons of double-digit inflation going um, way past the midterms and going into the 2024 um, election cycle, which would be catastrophic. It would be Carter-type scenario for Biden and for the Democrats, a much higher cost than taking steps now to bring inflation down. 75 basis point interest rate rises, consecutive probably, being part of that. And that's the most that Biden can do, is to say that the people whose job it is to do this have the power and independence to do it, to reiterate that point. He can, at the margins, do things like, uh, you know, persuade the Saudis to pump out more oil. He can politically signal, like saying, well, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission are going to investigate over concentration in sectors of the American economy. None of them are going to have any impact on inflation. None of them, or extremely marginal in the case of you know a, a slightly higher OPEC oil output. So I don't think that there is a trade-off here between democracy and inflation. I think ultimately, um, the Democrats have to be seen to be de- being responsible and defeating inflation. It's a very difficult message to sell politically in the build-up to the midterms, but it's a lot lot easier to sell that than hyperinflation in the build-up to the next presidential election. Good point. So I want to turn to David and then to Rosa with uh, some brief, isolated uh, c- cases, cases we could, I suppose, devote a whole episode to, but, we, but we, we haven't yet. David, when you and I first met, and let's spare the obvious jokes about how long ago that was, but we had just had the first summit of the Americas. And I was busy involved in this sort of creating a kind of a, a, a CEO summit of the Americas, commercial summit. We were just past NAFTA, there was going to be integration, blah, blah, blah. There was actually a summit of the Americas last week. No one cared. 
it was a complete dud. The president of Mexico didn't even come. You mentioned a couple of other countries that were not invited, but it was it was a non-event. And yet this hemisphere's got some very strange stuff happening in it. In Brazil, the next uh, biggest country in, in, in terms of population, they have a president who's trying to pull a Trump, except the military may actually be on his side. Bolsonaro may actually get to keep an, uh, you know, his office, you know, regardless of election results, uh, in a real throwback. In our next door neighbor country, AMLO, the, 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 the president has been saying very disturbingly nice things about the Iranians, the Russians. You know, he's, he is way off the what was once seen as, you know, sort of the common interests of NAFTA kind of reservation. Was it a mistake for everybody not to be paying attention to the summit of the Americas and what's going on in, in this hemisphere? Well, it wasn't a surprise, even if it was a mistake, because you had Ukraine going on, you had the school shootings and, and the other mass shootings, you had inflation, as you were just discussing. So there's almost only so much traffic that it can bear. But this was not a well thought out summit meeting. First of all, I think as most Americans didn't recognize what's going on, I, I didn't see very much coverage of it uh, on cable. We obviously covered it in the Times and Wall Street Journal, Washington Post gave it coverage, but I would suspect that most Americans didn't know what was happening. Second, the summits that you used to run during the Taft administration were uh, really good for making the case that democracy was spreading. What was the line everybody was using? That there would be democracy from Canada to Antarctica or something like that? Tierra del Fuego. Tierra del yeah. Fuego to Antarctica. That's not a claim that President Biden is able to make there by virtue of the fact that three countries, as we said at the beginning, were disinvited or never invited. Thirdly, the president had hoped to bring a big infrastructure program to Latin America that he was going to announce that you know Congress was going to help go fund and this was going to be a centerpiece of his what he's doing now. Obviously he can't pass much of a new infrastructure program at the home beyond what got passed last year. So the idea that he was going to do it here, particularly after we sent $57 billion to Ukraine, was pretty ludicrous. So they had a hard time com- coming up with many incentives there. And they didn't have much of a message, I think. So I'm not sure this one was really worth doing. By the way, just to clarify for everybody, David and I met at the funeral of Simone Bolivar in 1830 during the Andrew Jackson administration. <laughs> they really knew how to go put on a funeral back then. They knew, they, knew how to, they knew how to put on a funeral. I want to sort of bring it back to the domestic side of this. And maybe it puts you on the spot, Reza. Maybe it doesn't. I, I, I hope it doesn't. But I was having an offline conversation with Ed Luce, and we were talking about the fact that if people really wanted to send a message to Trump as a result of these hearings, they'd be making a real effort that Liz Cheney wins in, the, in, in her election in Wyoming, and that where you are in Wyoming would be overrun with people trying to save democracy by supporting somebody who's actually defending it. And do you see any signs of it? I, as the more I read about what's going on in Wyoming, it sounds like she's down in, by double digits. And, and uh, 
that she's actually going to pay the price for doing the right thing? I actually sent Liz Cheney uh, a paltry amount of money just as a tiny gesture of support for her stance on on Trump and defending the U.S. Constitution. I I, I think you what I, I worry in places like, like like Wyoming in particular, if a a horde of people from Brooklyn showed up and started knocking on doors, I don't think that would be doing Liz Cheney any favors. I think that part of what people bridle against is the sense of sort of outsiders trying to influence things rightly or wrongly, right? I do think that everybody should be giving money to Liz Cheney's re-election campaign and then let her campaign figure out how to spend that money to hire people here, here in Wyoming. I, that being said, here's my plan. If you guys are interested in my plan for fixing American democracy, if I were a gazillionaire, I would be creating fellowships to encourage people from blue states to move to red states you know, even if it's only for a short period, right? Because, because in places like Wyoming, the population is actually not that big. You know, the issue is not getting people here to go knock on doors and say, vote for Liz Cheney. The issue, you know, if you could get, you know, if you could get a couple hundred thousand people to move to Wyoming who were voting Democratic, the state would flip. It would become a blue state. And there are, there are a number of other states, you know, where they still get two Senate votes, just like everybody else, where in fact, a relatively small population shift would make a, the, the, all the difference. And, and in fact, in the US, as, as everybody knows, we are, we are moving in the opposite direction. You know, the, what do they call it? The, the big sort or the great sort. You know, people are increasingly living in places where they're surrounded by, by people who vote and think as they do, which is comfortable and cozy, but a really bad idea given the nature of the American electoral system. It's a terrible idea and, and is having awful effects as we have seen. So that's what I would be doing. If I were a gazillionaire, I would be I would be subsidizing people to move to the relatively small rural states that could easily be flipped by a smallish infusion of human beings enough to seize control of the Senate. And what would it take to get you to stay? I would totally stay here. I like it here. Okay. Well, it's that, that silo you have out in the back that we've talked about so many times. To wrap this up, Ed, let me turn back to you because I think it was the conversation that we were having. What do you think the message? I mean, I will say parenthetically, we're not celebrating it right now and here. We'll do it at some point in July because we're trying to coordinate it with Corey Shockey's schedule and your travel schedules. But this is the fifth anniversary podcast of Deep State Radio, this one right now. We started this five, five years ago. And when we started this five years ago, I had zero idea that the fifth anniversary podcast would involve a major push by people like Rosa and, and me, at least. I want to speak for you other two to uh, you know, support the campaign of Liz Cheney. It was not the drift that I saw. But what do you think that message ought to be to people around that particular race? Ed? Yeah, I mean, she's clearly not had any problem raising money. She's outraised her primary challenges, including the Trump-endorsed one. And she's not having any problem getting publicity. And I don't know whether there are enough Democrats who can register as Republicans for the primary to make a difference. I think the message that I would, that I would frame would be the kind of message that would, that would convince us. And since we're already convinced, I'm not sure it would be very helpful. Rosa might be better at that. I mean, I do think there is one other campaign that has an almost sort of equal capacity to dent Trumpism, and that is the Ohio Senate race, Tim Ryan versus J.D. Vance. And Tim Ryan is, 
he's taking a more, um, you know, purple state, dare I say, even red state nowadays campaign stance. He's not listening to the defund the police or getting sort of too virtue signaling in terms of um, his social policies. He's, you know, he's even, you know, disdaining masks and stuff, but he's doing well in the polls. And if he defeats Vance, then we have Ohio back in back in the uh, you know purple column, and that I think could also send Vance being a, a darling, having of Trump having bent over backwards to get his endorsement, having abased himself to the nth degree, is as important as the Cheney primary. What her message would be, though, other than what she's doing, which is saying, "I've got courage, I've got principles," and the real test of courage is, "Are you sacrificing, risking stuff?" She is risking her entire career. That ought to appeal to what I used to think were conservatives, character, courage. Clearly, it doesn't at the moment, but I, I, I can't think of any Hail Mary there. David, I was um, flipping through uh, a copy. I have an early copy of Kennedy's Profiles and Courage the other day, which is, of course, the book that everybody cites when they talk about Liz Cheney and, and her actions. And uh, certainly if Kennedy was writing it today or updating it or if his grandchildren decided to go do so, she would be, you know, a major chapter. But it's worthwhile. First of all, it's a great book, so it's worth rereading anyway. But as you go through it, what strikes you is people understood that the politicians who were who are described in this book were engaging in an act of great courage. And in almost all the cases, they lost. They may have succeeded in the eyes of history, but they lost their race to remain in office or to take office. So if that's what happens to Liz Cheney, and it's hard to predict from this distance, but you cited the polls, it would not be out of line with what you read in Profiles of Courage. That's a good Point, and it's how we got, uh, I think, why the first part of this podcast was dealing in profiles and pragmatism. And yeah. uh, we have ended up here uh, dealing briefly with uh, profiles and courage. And, uh, and it's, it's hard to be a winner in politics and, and to take a strong stance like that. More is the pity. Perhaps something will change. We shall see. We will cover it closely as we do each and every week with uh, you guys and, uh, and others. And um, we hope everybody will come back for that. We've, we will also have a big, uh, you know, sort of more appropriate uh, fifth anniversary celebration in a few weeks. So look out for that. But for now, thank you, David. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, join us again real soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>